I'd like to introduce our moderator for this evening, Jessica Levinson. As of July 1st, Jessica Levinson will be a visiting associate clinical professor at Loyola Law School. She is currently an adjunct professor there, as well as the director of political reform at the Center for Governmental Studies. Her work focuses on governance issues, including campaign finance, ethics, ballot initiatives, redistricting, term limits, and state budgets. She regularly appears as an election law and governance expert on television, radio, and in print, and speaks about the issues around the state. She also blogs for the Huffington Post and KCET.org. Please give a warm welcome to Jessica Levinson. Thank you everyone for being here. This is an overflow crowd, so this is fantastic. I would probably say this even if it weren't true, but it actually is. This is an amazing panel and any one of these people could easily do the hour. So it's gonna be my job basically to be hall monitor and get out of the way. I'm gonna briefly lay the groundwork. Why are we here? We're talking about redistricting. Very simply, every 10 years we count how many people we have and then we draw legislative lines accordingly sometimes to be safe, sometimes to keep our legislators in power. But we'll talk about that shortly. Uh, this time around, for the first time in the state's history, we have an independent redistricting commission, as I'm sure everyone here knows, drawing the lines. We'll talk about that. I will briefly lay the ground rules. We have about 40 minutes for the panel discussion. We have four panelists, so about 10 minutes each. I'm going to do, I think, one main broad question I'll start waving frenetically at about four and a half minutes. One to two follow-ups from me or your co-panelists, and I'll do my best to allow everyone to respond. As John King said at the presidential debate on Monday night, do your best to answer the questions that I ask. Um, <laughs> we will have 15 minutes for audience discussion, uh, excuse me, audience questions. Um, I would just say, I think this is a topic that people are very passionate about. We wanna hear from people uh, questions as opposed to statements preferable. So let me introduce this amazing panel first. We have, I didn't know which order we were sitting in, so I'm going to start with Dan Schnur. And I recently went to a speech that uh, Dan gave at my alma mater, and the person who introduced him said, when Dan Schnur talks, people listen. And I think that is that is absolutely true, for good reason. Dan is the director of the Unruh Institute of Politics at USC. He's a visiting instructor at UC Berkeley. He is past chairman of the California Political Practices Commission, and of course, one of the country's leading political and media strategists. There's, I could fill a whole hour talking about this, but I will say he worked for four presidential campaigns, three gubernatorial campaigns, he was director of communications for the 2000 presidential campaign of Senator John McCain. He advises, advises a number of foundations, including the Gates Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, and you can listen to his insightful comments on TV, radio, and uh, a little newspaper we may have heard of called the New York Times. Next, Kathy Fung. Kathy Fung is executive director of California Common Cause, and I've had the pleasure of working with Kathy for about four years. Um, I can say she's absolutely a force of nature. Uh, <laughs> under Kathy's direction, California Common Cause has grown. They have taken a leadership role in election and redistricting reform. 
um, accountability laws, campaign finance, media access, voting rights. Uh, very pertinent for us today, Kathy authored um, or play, and played a key role in the passage of Prop 11, uh, which created, of course, the Independent Redistricting Commission. Well, I mean, Kathy, you, sit, you do everything. You sit on the Secretary of State's Advisory Committee for HAVA and the LA County Human Relations Commission, among about 15 other things. Joe Matthews, all the way to the left, is the California editor of, to your right, to my left, so really that's what was important. Um, <laughs> he's the California editor of uh, Zocalo Public Square, Irvine Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation, a fellow at the Arizona State Center for Social Cohesion. He's co-president of the Global Forum on Modern Direct Democracy, which I assume you don't do much with that. No. Um, <laughs> he is lead blogger for NBC's California site Prop Zero. His work appears in the Daily Beast, the LA Times, the Washington Post, Politico, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the New Republic. I read him all the time. I am so much better informed as a result. And he's the author of two amazing books, The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and The Rise of Blockbuster Democracy. Um, and co-author of one of my latest favorite books, California Crack Up, How Reform Broke the Golden State and How We Can Fix It. Uh, which does, in fact, deserve the applause it gets. Uh, Stephen Ochoa, who I have a feeling I just mispronounced your name, Ochoa, Ochoa is the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Funds, known as MALDEF's, National Redistricting Coordinator. I think we can imagine how busy he's been lately. Um, he coordinates all of MALDEF's redistricting, California redistricting efforts. Uh, he trained at UC Berkeley in the statewide database and use of census and election data and GIS mapping. I barely know what that means. Thank God you trained in it. Um, Stephen assisted in MALDEF's redistricting efforts following the 2000 census, so we're gonna call on your historical perspective. So welcome to our amazing panel. So Dan Schnur, you had a Schnurism recently. You had a, a great quote that said, for most normal people, redistricting is the most boring word in the English language. But for members of Congress and state legislators, it is cause for full-out panic. This is musical chairs with switchblades. <laughs> so, so Dan Schnur, would you briefly kick us off by telling us, how did we get here? What was the problem that um, an independent redistricting commission sought to solve, and how is it solving it? Well, uh, uh, first of all, I just want to uh, tell our audience uh, how impressed I am that you've come out for a discussion on this topic tonight. Uh, years ago, working to pass the McCain-Feingold uh, legislation, I learned that the words campaign finance reform, if strung together enough times, could take even the most politically obsessed and hyper-caffeinated audience and put them to sleep without too much trouble whatsoever. And as my fellow panelists will tell you, redistricting is a much more efficient way of accomplishing exactly the same task. Um, I feel like I owe you an apology because the quote that Jessica read suggested that pe normal people are not interested in redistricting. I'm not suggesting that you're abnormal. <laughs> Special. We'll go with unique and, uh, and go from there. 
But to Jessica's question, as I think most of you know, and as is, is, is the other panelists can talk to you with great authority, the premise for redistricting reform is based not necessarily in the idea that it is a good idea or a bad idea to elect more moderates or more centrist to office, and not even primarily uh, with the idea that it is important to elect a representative body, either in Sacramento or in Washington, D.C., that reflects the state's demographic makeup. Well, those are, those are uh, happy ramifications. The primary goal of redistricting reform is simply, was simply to eliminate a fundamental conflict of interest in which politicians drew their own district lines. And as many smart people over the years have said, basically allowing elected officials to pick their voters rather than voters picking their elected officials. It strikes me that allowing a politician to draw his or her own district is a little bit like letting a teenager decide to set his or her own curfew. <laughs> that even if you start the beginning of the process with the best of intentions, at a certain point along the way, self-interest takes over. And what we ended up with, of course, as I'm guessing most of you in the audience knew, is a progressively worsening situation where every 10 years, aided with increasingly sophisticated technology, the leaders of both political parties, Republican and Democrat, got together and carved up the state uh, to reflect their own self-interest, which meant creating districts that were overwhelmingly safe for a Democratic candidate or overwhelmingly safe for a Republican candidate. And, the, and, and what we were left with, particularly after the 2000 redistricting, is not just a polarized, but a hyper-polarized legislature. And uh, today, in tomorrow morning's Los Angeles Times, you will read about the budget, and I use the word term loosely, passed by the State Assembly today. Um, but the budget debate reflects exactly the problem that redistricting is designed to, to solve. You have a governor of either party, Jerry Brown, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Gray Davis, Pete Wilson, who occupies the ideological space relatively close to the 50-yard line. And what you have are four are legislative caucuses that occupy their respective ideological end zones. And it doesn't matter whether that governor is Republican or Democrat. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that Governor Brown, like Governor Schwarzenegger and Governor Davis before him, legitimately wants to do the right thing and steer a relatively centrist and pragmatic course for the people of California. Well, it's a pretty lonely endeavor when you're accompanied in Sacramento only by the most liberal of Democrats and only by the most conservative Republicans. And what redistricting reform has done, and Kathy, to her credit, can talk not only with great insight, but from with an insider's perspective about how this process has, uh, to this point, succeeded. Not only has the passage of Prop 11 and the work of the Citizens Redistricting Commission eliminated the conflict of interest that legislators uh, uh, faced when drawing their own district lines, but as, a, uh, as I said, as a happy ramification, what we will see is an increasing number of centrists in the California State Legislature and in the California Delegation in Congress. And just quickly, that is not to suggest for a moment that moderates of either party are inherently superior or inferior to centrists. But if you look at the ideological spectrum of the electorate of California, you do have people on the far left, you do have people on the far right, but you have a lot of people in between. And those people need to be represented in Sacramento and Washington as well. I think even more importantly, particularly for a governor trying to solve a horrific uh, budget crisis, standing on the 50-yard line all by yourself is a pretty lonely way of balancing the budget. And if any of you have ever tried to involve yourselves in nuanced conversation and negotiation with somebody standing 100 yards away, it's not easy. So if this process plays out the way that I think it will, based on the commission's early work, 
we will not have 120 competitive districts in California. You cannot create a competitive district in Berkeley. You cannot create a competitive district in uh, Southern Orange County. But experience shows us that if even a dozen, 14, 15 legislators of both parties are elected in legitimately competitive elections, it can change the negotiating dynamic in Sacramento. It can create a considered center around which people can work together to compromise and find some common ground. And for that reason, I think that anybody who cares uh, about a successful governance and democracy in California should be very gratified and very thankful for the work that the commission's done to this point. Dan, you must have an internal stopwatch. That was exactly perfect. <laughs> um, and insightful. So, Kathy, um, oh. Dan gave you kind of a great entree into... I did not want to follow Dan. Who knows more about... Well, because well, I don't have cute stories well, here's or what I'm gonna, things to say. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, without him knowing, bring in Joe Matthews, your co-panelist. Joe Matthews has said, redistricting won't do a thing to solve those problems, or any of California's problems for that matter. Mm -hmm. So, Joe, you'll tell us what you think soon. Redistricting supporters have claimed that this redrawing of districts will remake California's politics by creating more political competition and more moderates willing to compromise. That's total bunk, close quote. Kathy, <laughs> will you tell us, how much will these lines really change from 2001, and can you give us a little more insight into the nuts and bolts of the process? Right. When I started in this process, it was in the early 2000s and even in the 1990s, um, and I was then working for an organization called the Asian Pacific American Legal Center, representing communities around the state, um, helping them for the first time, many of them um, fill out the census forms, and then teaching them about what that next big step was to become politically involved, which was to talk to the Assembly um, Elections Committee and the Senate Elections Committee about where their communities were in hopes that those communities might not be divided and um, exchanged uh, in the political game of redistricting. And I was a very naive young attorney uh, who believed that if you organized and you gave people all the tools and you gave them the maps and the, the uh, assistance with testimony that we could impress the legislators enough to, to draw lines that would really um, reflect that community testimony. And I recall after about four months of organizing and working side by side with folks like um, Steve Ochoa and other, other people who were in other organizations, um, through many, many long nights, um, we came to a point where the hearing stopped and we realized that the legislature was about to go into closed door sessions and do the negotiations that they really wanted to. And for all of the people who came forward for the first time, many of them, to talk to the Assembly and the Senate about the importance of holding places like Filipino Town together, because uh, as a veteran of the Philippine um, Army, there had been a promise by um, the American government that if they marched side by side in the death march of Bataan with American soldiers, that when they came to the United States, they would have a home that they could build and a country that would embrace them to be able to tell them that it was all worth it would have been phenomenal, but to have to go to them and tell them, gee, you know, this whole thing that we've been doing, the legislature went and did what they really needed to, and I'm sorry that your community has now been cut up into two and three pieces. And it was heartbreaking for me. 
Um, it was even more heartbreaking for me to see that Maldef had what I thought was a pretty smoking gun case um, where Latinos, 170,000, had been cut out of a San Fernando Valley district um, and they were bringing a case against a congressional member to challenge that district for them to be told by the courts, we're sorry, but a lot of the evidence that you're bringing forward is protected by legislative privilege. And I realized that so much of this game had already been predetermined. It wasn't even that the, the, the deck was stacked against us. It was that we were part of a dog and pony sideshow, and the real thing was happening in the legislature out of earshot um, without any public participation. And so for me, you know, the, the guiding principle of pushing for redistricting reform while I think it's, you know, there are many, many um, aspirations that people bring to it, including what, what Dan talked about. For me, it was really that if we're going to have a democracy that really works, where people come and talk to our government and share, um, pour out you know, what they feel strongly about in terms of their communities and what issues they care about, then there really should be somebody on the other side listening. Um, and we should have a process where um, people feel like they can have a real uh, place in shaping the next 10 years of what our government looks like. Um, so, long story short, we went through a long process of thinking about how redistricting could change. And we started small and eventually started looking at other states and seeing that a lot of people were talking about this idea of changing the very way that we do redistricting and instead of having incumbents draw the lines, giving it to a commission. Uh, in California, the proposal over three years evolved as we were talking with the legislature in the vain hope that we might actually come up with a proposal. Um, and three years, our Charlie Brown had Lucy yank that football from us. Um, we finally went to the ballot with a proposal where there were 14 citizens that would be chosen through a fairly involved process. Those 14 people would have to follow a set of rules that would be laid out in the Constitution. Um, and that they would be mandated to go around the state and listen to public testimony and everything would be in the open, transparent, and on the record. So that even if you didn't like the maps in the end, you'd have grounds to challenge them. Everything from testimony to the deliberations of the commission to their ultimate reasoning for how the lines got drawn would be there for everybody to consider, the public, the courts, the media, the politicos. And I think just in closing, one of the things, while I th we are now in a sort of juncture where the draft maps have come out and some people love the maps, some people hate them, some people you know, are kind of picking things that they like um, here and there. Um, one thing that I think we have ignited is the public's attention and involvement. And that's an exciting thing to see. I would never have imagined when, when the commission opened up the application process for people to apply for the commission, we thought on a good day that there might be 300 people, 400, maybe 500 people might apply. Who, who likes redistricting? Who would want to be a commissioner? And it turned out 30,000 people put their name in the hat. And 6,000 people actually filled out five essays, if you can believe it, and submitted resumes and all sorts of paperwork. And, and um, you know, through the process of the redistricting hearings, they've had 23 public hearings so far to receive input about, the, about their communities. And there have been over 1,500 people who've stood in line to, to provide testimony. I went to a, a hearing in San Gabriel and it was packed. 
Um, it was amazing to me. And so I hope that what that means is that there is a kind of excitement that's built around what the commission does, and that spills over into other areas of civic engagement, um, because that's what really California needs, is, is people to be engaged in this conversation about how we reshape California. Perfect entree to Joe Matthews. Um, Joe, I hope I accurately attributed when I was introducing Kathy that those were your quotes, not my words. I could not speak that articulately. Um, so, Joe, I mean, what's, what's not to love about this redistricting process that we've heard so much I mean, about? Um, I, I, and I, I know that what you support is more sweeping changes. And that's true. hopefully you can go into that. Um, but while this may not be a seismic shift, is it not an incremental improvement? It is in the same sense that it's probably, you know, there's, you're doing no harm by giving aspirin to someone with gangrene. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's a... It's, it's, it's fine. It's brushing your teeth when you have two broken legs. Um, I mean, there was a conflict of interest um, in doing this, uh, in, in people picking their own districts. We, we shouldn't do that. Um, and, you know, I'm a sort of fan of the, of the redistricting commission. Personally, I've been to their meetings. I've watched them on the web. Um, they're honest people. I won't say anything bad about them, and not just because one of them is you know, is the most important bookseller in the Sacramento area. Um, but, but, you know, the, the, there is real trouble in this area of the legislature, how it, it's organized, it's shaped and elected. And this doesn't, you know, do a whole heck of a lot to get at what those um, problems are. And I think there was a, a, a frustration with, with how this thing was sold um, as what Dan just sold it as, is a way to create political competition that would lead to more moderates um, and centrists. I mean, there is no sign, you can see it from these early maps, that we're moving that direction. Even the Public Policy Institute of California had a, uh, looked at this and with a very broad definition of competitive, found that, you know, under the best case scenario, you know, 16 assembly seats, and I think, it was eight uh, Senate seats, state Senate and state assembly seats would become, would be, you know, at least marginally competitive by their standard. That means that we go from a, to a situation where more than 90% of the legislative races don't matter, they're already decided, to a situation where maybe more than 80% of legislative races don't matter and decided. And I think we need to, to think about, you know, particularly if we're talking about you know, engagement and getting people involved, really changing the system. You need, a, you need to talk about changing to a system for organizing legislature and legislative elections where, you know, there's comp real competition everywhere. Everyone's vote matters. Um, and more broadly with redistricting, I think redistricting is one of the least offensive reforms in this sort of wave of reform we've been on in California. Um, reforms that don't seem to make things any better. Um, and... I think that it sort of points to sort of three big problems with our thinking, and I, and I mean both elite thinking and also Californians thinking. Um, one is our embrace of the politics of anti-politics. This is a classic place, you know, redistricting commission, 
political virgins wearing blindfolds, right? Um, you know, citizens redistricting commissions. Citizens is a strange thing because you couldn't have done anything that a really engaged citizen, you know, had done in the last 10 years and be on this commission. Things like, you know, be part of a campaign, be part of the government, you know, uh, donate to somebody um, or have a close relative who is, you know, dangerously civic-minded in a similar way. And so, you know, so we have this, we, and we do this, this is least offensive because there's a conflict of interest, but we do this with the budget, probably most famously. We don't want to trust and give agency to the people we elect. We want to take it from them and replace it with a formula, a commission, a special thing. And that has put us to the case where, you know, Californians don't seem to get that. Yeah, we took this power away from our from our elected officials, and then we're really mad at them when they're not able to do anything. And they can't seem to make the connection between those two sentences. Um, I think more broadly, you know, a lot of the political reform that's talked about um, also is sort of the theory of the magic moderate, you know, that if you get a few more moderates in, things will become magical. I still don't understand how that happens. And I'm a moderate, I'm a declined state. I mean, I, I disagree with Dan especially. We moderates were, were smarter, better looking than all you grubby partisans out there. But, you know, we, we, there's, the pharmaceutical industry hasn't come up with anything that, that can spread what we have to the rest of you. And the reality of what's happening is that voters are becoming more partisan. In, in, and we really need to think about systems that don't try to force moderates out, but really deal with this, you know, heavily partisan reality. And just a third observation about you know, redistricting part of this California disease, and final one, is, this, is, is the narrowness of this. You know, with all these big questions, I mean, our, our legislature is, is wildly wrong in scale. It's, you know, our people represent, you know, legislators represent more than three times as many people as, as, the, as legislators in the other state. Um, we are sorted ourselves into communities of like-minded. There are all these sort of big questions that we need to deal with. But we get focused on this real narrow question of who draws the line. In the same way that a state has all kinds of questions of economy and budget and how to invest in the future and how to educate people, obsesses for five months over whether we're going to have temporary, a temporary one-cent increase you know, on your dollar cup of coffee. I mean, we are so narrow in our thinking um, and we really need to think more bigger, more broadly, look out to other states, look out to the rest of the world in a much broader way, and realize that we, have to we are so broken, we have to design all the parts of our system together in a broader process. Well, okay, I definitely... Uh, Stephen, show. I want to bring in your perspective, but um, Dan Schnur, because I didn't see you actually walk in with a switchblade, um, I'll let you verbally respond uh, very briefly if you'd like. Um, I, I think there is a longer conversation to be had between Joe and myself. I'll just make one point to undermine his credibility on a much broader basis. <laughs> <laughs> he talked about moderates being uh, more physically attractive than liberals or conservatives, and I'd simply point out that Brad Pitt and George Clooney are two principal liberals. Uh, Gary Sinise and, in his day, Charlton Heston were committed conservatives. And Joe Matthews and I are passionate moderates. Come to your own decisions. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll come back to the rest of it later. Okay, good. Um, Stephen, I, Joe said a lot of things that I'm sure everybody wants to respond to, but one of them was... Um, that redistricting is one of the least efficient, excuse me, least offensive, uh, slight difference in the meaning, reforms. And I know that you have serious concerns with uh, the maps that were just proposed on Friday. And um, 
specifically, I know that MALDEF wants more congressional districts that are uh, dominated by Latinos uh, based on demographic shifts. Could you walk us through what your concerns are? Um, so first of all, let me state for my record, uh, MALDEF is and I are a completely nonpartisan organization. I don't care about Republicans. I don't care about Democrats. I don't care about moderates. Uh, <laughs> What I care, uh, for me, uh, the reason I fell in love, so to speak, and it's a love-hate relationship at this moment in time, <laughs> with redistricting, is it truly is about empowering communities uh, and to get fair representation on all types of levels. And we're only talking about the state redistricting right now, but this happens on any jurisdiction in the land that has this districted system. So your city councils, your board of supervisors, your state, your federal, it, it happens. And... And, and particularly for a, as, a as a person of color and working for an organization that tries to empower a very traditionally disenfranchised uh, community nationally, um, redistricting is an opportunity to give voice to the voiceless. You know, at, at its core, you know, that's what I feel my personal mission is, and that's why I like, enjoy working for an organization like Maldiv, whose mission that is their mission as well. And so the redistricting process for us is, you know, is, is compliance with the law and in particular compliance with the Federal Voting Rights Act. So the Federal Voting Rights Act, uh, just a quick 101 for you, was passed in 1965 and it's been this wonderful, it's probably been one of the most impactful pieces of legislation ever passed in our nation's history for empowering disenfranchised communities. Uh, in the South, in, it, gave Southern, it got rid of literacy tests for the Southern blacks and other barriers for registration just to vote. Uh, for those of us who are language, linguistically isolated, gave us the bilingual ballot so we can actually read you know, who or what we're trying to vote for and decide. Um, and in redistricting, it is about uh, basically giving a you know, traditionally, I don't want to say oppressed, but disenfranchised community a voice you know, and attempt to give them a fair share uh, of the pie so they can elect their candidate of choice. It's not necessarily about electing a brown person or person of color, but the community's candidate of choice, whoever he or she may be. And so uh, one of my frustrations with this, uh, pro this process, not that I didn't agree that reform was absolutely necessary uh, in 2001, you know, I was in one of those backroom deals when the line drawer basically told me you know, a certain Congress member had better things to do than worry about district maintenance, i.e. earning people's votes uh, to continue his election, uh, re-election. And, you know, and I was sitting closer than Kathy is to me when he, sa he said it to me. Um, so I certainly had that anger and frustration over hap what happened in 2001. Um, but, you know, the process that, you know, the reforms I wanted to see were most certainly were transparency and removing, a, uh, basically transparency, and it, that was the truth reform that was absolutely needed. Uh, you know, getting it out of the back room, and yes, meaningful public dialogue. But that said, we, that, you know, we also needed to see an emphasis on complying with the Federal Voting Rights Act. And so for redistricting, basically if you have a scenario where a minority group is sufficiently large enough to control a district, and there are other groups around them that are always voting against their candidates of choice, you have to draw that district. Uh, and there are various forms of minority vote dilution that can happen in redistricting. One is basically dividing a community when they could have controlled their, a single district, or over-concentrating minority communities 
to, make, to not give them as many districts as they uh, could fairly control. Uh, and, that is, uh, and that is what it seemingly has happened in this first draft of the commission maps, that they have started to over-concentrate uh, disenfranchised communities. And so what happened is uh, Latinos are 38% of our state. Uh, Latinos uh, comprised 90% of California's total population growth. California grew 3.3 million people between our last two censuses. Latinos grew 3 million people. And uh, there was basically no increase in this first draft map, and it's only a draft, but no increase in Latino opportunity district, or Latino districts for where, or districts where Latinos have the chance to elect candidates of choice. Uh, and on some levels, like the state senate, we saw a regression, uh, a loss of districts. And so, you know, at this point in time, I'm not saying, and we don't know what the final product will look like on August 15th, but at this point in time, it looks like we trade, you know, from my perspective, we trade at one disenfranchising system for another at this point in time. And so, you know, and there are, you know, the, you know, and I don't think it's intentional. I have, see, I have met uh, these 14 uh, members, men and women. They are dedicated public servants right now, you know, and I, have, I too have been traveling the state, you know, trying to empower community members, teaching them about the redistricting process, trying to get them to participate, discuss their communities of interest, uh, teaching them why it is so important. This is 10 years worth of representation on your local, state, and federal levels. Um, so I know the sacrifices that they are making away from their family. I know I have. I haven't seen my mother in weeks. You know, I think Mother's Day was the last time I saw her, you know, so... <laughs> You know, she, she's getting another cat to replace me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that said, right now, they, you know, they have a specific set of ranked criteria that they have to follow. Uh, the first rule, big rule of redistricting number one, as I teach people, is equal population. The same, districts have to be the same amount of people. Big rule number two is compliance with the Federal Voting Rights Act. Voting Rights Act. Kathy will tell you, rules three is contiguity, rules four is compliance with cities, counties, and communities of interest. So they are elevating, at this point, from my perspective, lower rank criteria over compliance with federal law. And uh, it's not that you don't have to, you disregard uh, you know, communities of interest or public testimony, but there are other rules of redistricting and sometimes they are publicly uh, unpopular to do. And again, I'm a redistrictor. I already know I'm gonna be unpopular, you know. <laughs> you know um, but, you know, that's what I'm seeing so far. And it's just, again, on a macro level, when, again, Latinos were 90% of the growth in this state and saw no gains in this first draft, you know, it's very, very frustrating. Um, how much time we got? Am I good? None. Uh, huh? None. None. <laughs> well, then I'll keep going. Um, <laughs> no. But, I mean, again, it's just a frustrating process. At this point in time, there is still time to... to to, uh, for the commission uh, to change their maps, and I'm certain they will. Uh, and uh, we, you know, I hope to work with them to uh, you know, rectify some of these uh, issues that we have, at least. Um, Kathy, mm -hmm. you're a Voting Rights Act attorney, so I'll ask you a compound question, which you're never supposed to do. One, um, you're following the commission very closely. If you want to respond to any of the concerns that Stephen has raised, mm -hmm. Um, and number two, what are some other problems that the commission is facing? And specifically, can you address the issue of 
the threshold that it will take for them to actually approve the maps. Um, it has to mm. be four of the five Democrats, four of the five Republicans, three of the five independents. If they can't agree on that high threshold, then ultimately the okay. California Supreme Court will appoint special masters. So should we not have just gone straight to the special masters? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and allowed Steve to have Mother's Day and Father's Day with his family. Um, right. <laughs> so I think that um, Steve raises a lot of important concerns and they're, they're valid ones. Um, I will say that I think the way the commission set up the first round of hearings, the 23, um, they basically said they had a commitment. We're not going to draw a single line until we hear from folks around the state. So we're going to go visit 23 different places around the state. And they traveled the state. You know, they went from Reading to, you know, Fresno and San Bernardino and Stockton and, you know, all points in between. And they came down to Orange County a couple times and San Diego. So they really, and in L.A., I think they had three different locations. They were really were trying to hear from a lot of different locations. And by comparison, by the way, when the legislature had hearings, um, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that they had about a dozen hearings, um, all less. told. Yeah, less, okay. So less than a dozen. Um, so it was a lot less stress to go to 12 hearings, um, that's for sure. But um, what they wanted to hear from was, first and foremost, regular folks who were going to come and talk about their communities. Um, this is perhaps because they are a relatively novice group of people, although extremely intelligent and accomplished in their own right. Um, they did not start out with a Voting Rights Act analysis to figure out what districts could be drawn um, to ensure that minority representation was taken care of before going out on the road tour to listen to everybody. So the first round of draft maps reflects a lot of hand-wringing about all this community testimony and how to take it into account. Um, and I don't think that they had yet sort of taken a step back to say, okay, so how many Latino opportunity districts did we draw? How many minority ma majority districts did we draw? You know, what's the partisan balance? They didn't think about that. They just, they said, okay, that's great. Now let's put it out and, and hear back from people. And I think part of it was, well, if we, if we, didn't do it right, we're sure that Maldif will tell us and then, then we can come back, right? Um, and I, I think, you know, part of that's right, I, I, although I, I don't think that they needed to cause as many people heartburn the way they did. Um, but that said, I think that, you know, that's, that was their approach. Um, and I think that they're now at a place where they are bracing themselves. Um, one of the last hearings that they had, they were actually talking about how do we make sure that we established decorum during these um, hearings, which are packed. People are sitting in the aisles and, you know, it gets a little bit rowdy sometimes. And sometimes, particularly now that the draft maps are out, there are going to be some angry people. Um, I saw an email that was interesting to me. It was forwarded to me by somebody who's active in the Democratic Party, but it was an email of the Tea Party sent to Tea Party folks from um, the San Bernardino area talking about people, you need to go to the San Bernardino hearing because our community has been split up and we're now placed into two democratic seats. And we need to show up en masse to bring signs and let the, uh, the commission know how we feel. 
And I think we're going to see a lot of that. Um, the question is, how do you take what will be a lot of passioned um, presentations and turn it into a dialogue and turn it into something that's constructive uh, around a map that you know people can come together around. Um, and I, I think that they have a hard time. They will have a very hard time. It's not easy, and I, I don't at all um, want... I feel bad that there are 14 people who are very good and honest people who have been thrown into this very difficult job. Um, what was your second question? So um, <laughs> my second question... Are they actually going to pass the map? Um, if right. you... If we... If you can, right. uh, briefly. So the quick thing is just that um, a lot of pundits on the outside have said, wow, there's just no way that you know, 14 people who come from different partisan backgrounds are going to be able to agree on a map. And it is true that there have been certain key votes where they haven't always agreed. But they have this interesting structure that they've set up for themselves, and they've done a lot of things that I think give you signals for hope. One of them is that they decided that they were not going to choose any one person to be the chair or vice chair. Rather, they were going to rotate it between the 14 people. And I think it creates this interesting dynamic. Talk about somebody who's always on the 50-yard line, right? Because at any meeting, somebody's going to have to play the moderator and the facilitator for all of their fellow commissioners. And it means that they have to sit in a role where they can't just articulate what my opinion is. I now have to listen to everybody and figure out how do we move the meeting forward. Um, on a lot of the votes, they've tried very hard to, to um, find consensus between them and to vote together. Uh, and, and I think that they were chosen in part um, to look for people who could find that consensus. That said, if it gets kicked to the courts, um, the same set of criteria apply for the courts to lay out you know, the one, two, three, four, five, six mapping rules that they have to follow. Everything's on the record, all the testimony that's come before. And I think, again, the process will be much more transparent than before. The one upside to, to doing it this way, this messy democracy, rather than just skipping to um, something easy like going to the courts, if that's easy, is that we've got a public engagement process. And, you know, if we wanted to just skip to the chase and draw the maps that, you know, should have been drawn, we could have just handed it to a computer. But I don't think that that's what our democracy is about. It is about having hard conversations and engaging each other. Well, sorry, that was too No, no, that's, I, you've proven what my high school knew, which is that I'm not a good hall monitor, but you're, you're a good speaker, so it's turning out well. Um, Dan, I asked you to open this up. Unfortunately, we're or fortunately we're running out of time because um, everyone said such useful things. But I'll ask you, I said, how did we get here? And now I'll ask you if you can wrap it up by saying, where are we going? Um, what are the challenges and opportunities for the two major parties as a result of this redistricting? Um, and or how will this affect the way the legislature does business? Well, I think Joe, believe it or not, actually made a point that I agree with. <laughs> um, there are no magic answers in politics. Not redistricting, not term limits, not top two primaries, not campaign finance reform. There's no magical way to instantaneously fix the system. And anyone who goes into this process, who voted for Prop 11, or is watching this commission do its work, expecting uh, a magical Socratic dialogue in in Sacramento, and if you've been to Sacramento recently, that Socratic dialogue would in fact be miraculous. Um, 
it's, 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 not going to, it's not going to happen. Joe is right. Politics is dirty and it's messy and it's difficult. But what I think redistricting does, it doesn't magically make that change happen, but at least creates an opportunity where that change and that progress can happen. I was listening to Steve earlier, and I, I, I think uh, whether he intended to or not, he made a very, very strong case for the process currently underway. I'm going to quote you, probably not precisely, but paraphrase. Uh, one thing you said, Steve, about the 2000 process, and one thing you said about this one. In 2000, Steve was sitting with a, a, a staff member, an advisor to an elected official, and he looked at you and said, my member doesn't want to bother with district maintenance. In 2011, what Steve said, and I quote, talking about his uh, difficulties with the work that the commission had done to this point, he said, I don't think that it's intentional. All right, two wrong outcomes. One unintentional, one mistake that can be fixed, and Kathy explained the process, over the next few months, there are adjustments that can and will be made that might not satisfy all of Steve's concerns. But I will bet you money move a lot more aggressively in that direction because when you're trying to fix an unintentional mistake, you're a lot more likely to be responsive than if you look someone in the eye from as far away as we are and say, my member doesn't want to bother with talking to voters. So an unintentional mistake can be fixed a lot more easier than an intentional uh, uh, transgression. But I, I guess what I'd say briefly, and then I know a lot of you have, hopefully, uh, have, have questions you'd like to put to any or all of us, is I was in Sacramento in the 1990s. And Joe, Joe's one of the smartest people I know. He watches this stuff very, very carefully. I asked him a little bit earlier. He said he got to Sacramento in, 2000, he got Sacramento in 2003. I got there in 1990. And I watched districts drawn by the state Supreme Court because a Republican governor and a Democratic legislature could not come to agreement. As I said earlier, they could not create 120 competitive districts, nor did they try because people self-select where they live, and that's just the way the world works. But what I saw in the 1990s is a certain number of competitive districts. What did PPIC say? 16, 20, 25 between the state Senate and the state assembly? 24, yeah. yeah. And if you have a couple of dozen people clustering at or near the 50-yard line, looking for reasons to compromise, looking for reasons to work together, that really does make for a much more effective legislating process. Let's take this out of the abstract quickly and go, back, go to the practical. Let's go back to the state budget. What we do at USC, with USC College, uh, the uh, USC Dornsife College, is we co-sponsor a poll with the LA Times. And we asked Californians earlier this year how they wanted to see the budget balanced. Californians felt overwhelmingly that they deserved a right to vote on whether those taxes should be extended or not. They also said overwhelmingly that they wanted to see a spending cap imposed on state spending and that they wanted to see a certain number of changes to the pension system. Now, if you represent all but three of the 120 districts in the California state legislature, you know that the only way you'll ever lose a re-election campaign is to a more ideologically extreme member of your own party. Your district was created to be safe for a Republican, safe for a Democrat. You'll only lose to a more conservative Republican or to a more liberal Democrat, which means the only way you'll ever lose this job is if you compromise. The only way a Democrat could ever lose a re-election campaign is by voting for a spending cap or for pension changes. The only way a Republican could ever lose a re-election campaign is by voting to put those tax extensions on the ballot for you to make your decisions. It's not magic, Joe. 
But if you have a dozen, if you have 15, if you have 20, if you have two dozen people who can benefit politically in a pure term of self-interest by compromising, that creates opportunities. It doesn't magically fix the problem, but when you have a small number of reasonable people who are talking rather than shouting and throwing javelins at each other, that allows a democracy at least the opportunity to function the way we want it to. Is that idealistic? Of course it is. But you know what? Winston Churchill once said, it's better to be a mile outside of hell heading out than 100 miles away heading in. <laughs> and actually, what I should say very, before we go to questions, I need to admit this to you because you're a smart audience that has the potential to Google while we're talking. Actually, Winston Churchill never said that. I made it up. But what I found with my students in class... <laughs> But what I found with my students in class is if you attribute a quote to a famous person, they tend to write it down and they tend to remember it. <laughs> I, got some for, I, got, uh, I got others for Lincoln and LBJ. We'll get to those later. <laughs> well, I declare I am a former student and I don't remember anything you're talking about. <laughs> well, Dan, you said it, so I think people will write it down regardless. Um, I think we... We hit the mark and then some, so that was great. And I'd love to hear from the audience. My question is for those who support the redistricting efforts, if this effort is successful, if you are able to see more moderate candidates from both parties elected to Sacramento and you see more compromises made and maybe a budget, a real budget passed on time, et cetera, et cetera, do you feel that previous reforms that passed in past years by the voters could perhaps be eliminated, specifically term limits? I don't know about whether or not magic will happen in the legislature. I do know that in, uh, on, the next, on next year's ballot, there will be a term limit reform initiative. And the interesting thing was that somehow labor and the chamber came together to figure out how to talk to each other around this. And, and uh, one of the things that they're doing is, is trying to reform term limits. So expect it on probably the June 2012 ballot and the voters will be able to decide. I really appreciate the panel. I like the opening as in terms of a definition of what is the problem. And I felt there were two perspectives here, a very, it's a big issue, but a very narrow focus on one part, and then a focus on what about all this? My question relates to the all this, would that not be an attempt to change the state constitution, right? So specifically, do you believe that this process will get us closer to being able to get to a state constitutional Congress and change. For noble intentions, we've, we, the opportunity cost of spending years and years and a lot of time and money and the energy of some of our most public-spirited people in California on this very narrow question of who draws lines and how we do it, we have delayed and things have gotten worse in these sort of bigger things. And, and basically what, I mean, the kind of things we need to deal with are scale. I mean, you know, a California legislature represents three times more people than a legislature in the state with the next most number of people and 10 times more than the national average. If you're a state senator in California and you read two Twitter messages from everybody you represented in a year, you would read 25 books the length of war and peace. I mean, it is too many people. Um, there's no way to have that kind of connection. We need that to fix that. It means you need more people in the legislature, a lot more three times more just to get us down to the size of Texas. I mean, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. You need to create real political competition everywhere so that the, the Republicans in the Bay Area who are wasting their time voting in legislative elections are Republicans here in Los Angeles. Um, you need 
we need a different kind of election system. I mean, I think, you know, rather than dice, slicing and dicing regions apart, the districts should be regions. We would have, you would have each, you know, re some regions are more populous than others, and the, and the number of representatives that a region sent to the legislature would, you know, be you know, to comply with the law, you know, proportional to population. And then we need to start doing what the rest of the world does. In fact, what American political scientists have been advising the rest of the world to do every time after we come in after a war. Um, and, and that's have systems that involve multi-member districts and proportional representation. America and California you know, are you know we're sort of outliers. The globe is working the West way, and and when you when you do that, when you proportionally, you know, give out seats in multi-member districts, you create competition everywhere. Because even in a very democratic place, Republicans can win by advancing agenda, debating the issues, um, getting people out to the polls. I mean, right now we have a system where. You know, um, you know, my my own uh, neighborhood is divided into three assembly districts by this map. Um, um, you know, my two-year-old on a two-block tricycle ride will be able to go through three assembly districts, <laughs> and it doesn't bother me in the least because it doesn't matter it, whichever whether I'm at my Starbucks in one part of the in one district or my apartment in another district or at the local park in a third district. I I, I know in either of those places I'm going to be rep I'm in Los Angeles I'm in the Miracle Mile I'm going to be represented by a basically liberal Democrat. It doesn't matter. Matter what I do, if I show up to vote or not, that's what's going to happen. Um, and you know, we ought to have elections that are real. We don't have real, honest legislative elections or contests in this state. We don't. Where people choose to live obviously influences this process. But I was a member of the Maldiv redistricting team in 1990, and I've seen the change over the last 20 years. And I believe it's going to take the next 20 years, which is why I brought my son who can participate in the next round of redistricting. But, but I'm anxious to hear from the other folks to see if maybe there's some optimism there that we can address these big problems. That, that, that I want him to read your blog so he can understand it going forward 10 years. Thank you. My question relates to, I was favoring a statistic based only on census data and geography that, uh, that tends to favor more competitive districts. And one of the commissioners said, well, point of information, we are not allowed to consider competitiveness as a consideration. And I commented, well, I think the information on your website is accurate when it says that you're not required to. But I was wondering if the, if the panel here could comment, do you believe the commission is allowed to consider competitiveness of the districts? The lines as they were drawn by the legislature were incentivized to create as non-competitive districts as possible. So if you eliminate competition as a factor in the decision-making process, positive or negative, you invariably end up with more competitive districts. Maybe not the 120 that Joe accuses me of wanting, but you do get the 15, 20, 25 that uh, reasonable analysts are talking about. In other words, I, don't, I, I, th I think by talking about minority representation, by talking about compactness, by talking about census tracts, and by disregarding competition altogether, the commission takes us to a much more competitive system because their predecessors went out of their way to avoid competition. And I just want to add, um, so the Arizona commission has, the state of Arizona has a redistrict commission. They started theirs, they had one last cycle, and so this is their second cycle under it. And their law does actually have a competitiveness measure in their law. But the problem is if you actually specifically mandate competitiveness, like redistricting already on its own is full of competing mandates. And trying to, to actually attempt competitive districts harms actually minority voting rights. 
because uh, uh, after a while, it's just one party think assuming all minorities are like-minded and but just divvy them up, you know, rather because they only see red and blue, uh, and so they start purposely dividing minority communities. Oh, we can do that because they're just red and blues, uh, but they actually dilute the minority voice because. It's not, you know, the, my, the minor, Latino community in particular is very, very politically diverse, and frankly, uh, political ideology changes over time, and that's not a surefire method. So competitiveness is not in, was specifically kept out of it because it conflicts with the uh, satisfying the Federal Voting Rights Act. And the one thing that they are not allowed to do is consider partisan relationship to partisanship data and specific elected officials or potential candidates. Um, and so that, in that regard, they don't look at partisan data, although they occasionally, eventually have to look at it when they're trying to st examine if the specific district complies with the Federal Voting Rights Act. And, and I just want to, I just, because we, we're starting to equate competitiveness, a competitive district is going to produce moderates. That's not necessarily true. We've had some competitive districts. They don't necessarily give us moderates. And they also don't necessarily give us people of courage. I mean, um, those, those legislators on those moderate districts, you've never seen such cowardly folks in the legislature. They're, they're nervous. They're scared of their own shadows. So thinking that that's going to lead to great great change from those folks is, is, is a bad calculation. But it gets back, and I'm sorry because I know we have more questions, it gets back to my point about how there's no magic in this. We're not talking about magically creating courageous legislators. We're not talking about even magically creating centrist legislators. What we're talking about is a certain number of competitive districts that at least give you an opportunity to accomplish those things. I'm going to ask sort of a devil's advocate question. In the drawing of securing districts for minority representation, rather than could it be possible that um, we have a dilution of power, we end up rather isolating these communities and their candidates or leave them susceptible to manipulation by either party as opposed to maybe if they're part of a more moderate or mixed district that the moderate representing them would be forced to really engage with them and really take their views to um, Sacramento? It's been my observation that, you know, candidates that come from minority opportunity districts, I mean single minority opportunity districts, are much more responsive to that community and that constituency. Uh, there are, of course, you know, particularly with the Latino community, we're very diverse, we're spread out, uh, you know, we're in many, many parts of California at this point. 38% of the state compared to 40% of the non-Latino white population. Um, so, but that said, you know, it's, you know, there, you know, going back to what happened in the San Fernando Valley in 2001, I remember the public uh, testimony was, uh, you know, Congressman Berman, who represented the whole East uh, San Fernando Valley, a Latino community which had grown into basically a Latino opportunity seat, you know, said, you know what, I, you, know, he, you know, he grew as a person, he started following on immigration issues, and you know what, it's, it's Brad Sherman's time, so he has to learn how to represent Latinos, so that's why we're going to give him some, you know, and making sure, and then of course, in making sure that the Latino community in that East Valley does n did not have a chance to control their own destino, destiny. Um, you know, after a while, it's, you know, it's candidates from Latino opportunity districts that I see chaining them, handcuffing themselves to the White House vents on immigration reform, uh, you know, it's, you know, black representatives marching, you know, for civil rights maintenance and reform because they come, they have earned representation because of the Federal Voting Rights Act. You know, it's not, it's not isolation, it's empowerment, you know, and 
you know, and, and as we grow as a country, you know, we, there, there still is, you know, polarization across our land. You know, just yesterday I was in Anaheim, in Santa Ana, uh, conducting a workshop, and a woman was just in tears having come from the Orange County Board of Supervisor Redistricting Process, and the Latino community in Orange County is cut up on multiple supervisorial districts, and basically, you know, one of her programs she felt was defunded because, you know, Latino was in her coalition name. So she was just in tears, and, you know, there was no, there, there is not yet a representative there. And so it's not a matter of, like, let's sprinkle the diversity around, and, oh, the, eventually the candidates will, will, you know, look to them. They might look to them on election day, but not necessarily during the actual time of governance. Philosophically, I mean, the census is based on the number of residents in an area, not necessarily the number of voters. And so when we move that jump from census to competitive district, we lose a whole population of people. I was not a citizen until I was 18. My parents were not citizens until I was 21. They paid taxes. I went to school. We needed representation. So just philosophically, what are your thoughts about the kinds of things that commissions moving forward need to do in this independent process? to be philosophically representative of residents and not necessarily of voters. Well, I think we just need to be clear that the, the districts are based, when they're thinking about equal population, they're looking at the entire population of the area. They're not looking at who's a registered voter or just people who are 18 years and older or who are just citizens. They're looking at the whole population. Um, I, I didn't respond to the gentleman who asked about the co competition question, but I will say that the... Um, Constitution currently says that the commission cannot consider, um, it cannot favor or discriminate in drawing lines against or for uh, incumbents, candidates, or parties. Um, so, so what that means is that it's not that they're disallowed from drawing competitive districts, but a lot of the kinds of considerations that come into play when you're trying to make a district that is going to be 40% Democrat, 40% Republican, and, you know, some percentage of uh, declined estates or, or non-aligned. Um, you, you just, you can't orchestrate a district that way because in doing so, you start paying attention a lot to the partisan representation and it becomes, you know, am I favoring or discriminating against a party? On the other hand, what happened in 2001 in terms of favoring and discriminating against incumbents and parties was something more like this. I live in uh, Long Beach, I'm an assemblywoman, um, and I'm aspiring to run for um, a Senate office. So at the assembly level, I'm playing 3D chess now. At the assembly level, I'm gonna make sure that the district is drawn for me, and even if I'm not in that district, I'm gonna have a little finger stuck out for me you know, that, that grabs my house. And then I'm gonna look and see it who has been a troublemaker during this time. Dan Schnur has always been a thorn in my side, so I'm gonna draw a little nook that, that takes his house out. But Joe, I think I can bring him in as a, as a major donor. In particular, I can appeal to his two-year-old and his you know, four-month-old, so I'm gonna draw him in. Right, and so all these strange contortions happen just as it's sort of accommodating one person's desire to have political security. And that happens, as I said, in 3D chess, because now this assembly person, if they have the favor of you know, the, the Senate leadership or the, the um, assembly leadership, 
they get the okay to also have a Senate seat that is drawn for them, right? So the Senate seat is drawn for that sitting incumbent, but then also fingers, nooks, and crannies are drawn in order to accommodate my future aspirations. And same goes with congressional. Um, if you're not taking those into account, and you just draw the districts as they will be in order to respect communities or the Voting Rights Act or other considerations, um, cities, neighborhoods, um, counties, and so forth, then you will end up with districts that um, are more competitive, but for different reasons. They may be more competitive because you've got an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. They may also be more competitive because there is no longer one incumbent who has been pre-chosen to win that district for the rest of their term. Um, and I think those are the reasons why we're just going to have more interesting conversations and why I think then those people who are incumbents right now and who are screaming very loudly about either A, being forced into a seat, a district, a draft district with another incumbent, or B, being drawn into a district that now has a different demographic representation than they used to have. What I say is, first, those districts may very well change, but second, live with it. That, that's your constituents. And if your demographics in that district are changing because they're becoming more Latino or because uh, it's, it's more democratic or because it includes more of um, Rancho Palace Verdes, then so be it, because you have to earn that vote every time you go up for election, and it should be a process where you talk to the voters and try to earn that vote. It shouldn't just be a gimme. And I think that that's a good process, because they become more responsive through that. Great panel tonight. Um, but I wanted to know if someone could address um, who, who actually picks or who chose the, the, the commission, mm -hmm. and can you address the, the, the diversity yeah. in, the, in the commission? Because I know you said, uh, somebody mentioned seven Democrats, seven Republicans for, or sorry, I, I got that yeah. all mixed up. Uh -huh. But a certain number of Democrats, a certain number uh -huh. of Republicans, a certain number of independents. Um, why is that taken into consideration if, the, uh, if partisanship is not a factor right. in the redistricting? was a painfully difficult process to figure out how to select 14 people who um, could be smart and savvy enough to figure this whole process out, but at the same time wouldn't be beholden to any interests. Um, so there are 14 people. Um, there are five Democrats, five um, Republicans, and four others. Did I do my math right? Um, and that part was because um, when we were first talking with the legislature about the possibility of the legislature coming up with a similar solution, a, a commission. Um, the idea was that um, you didn't want a situation where, um, because this commission has to exist not just in 2011, but also 2021, 2031, 2041. So you need to make sure that those 14 people represent some political diversity, and nobody feels like they have an advantage or disadvantage over another. So, so it is not a perfect representation of our uh, partisan representation at this point in the state um, of the population, but it was felt that, like many other commissions, you got to have a balance. Okay. Second question is, what's the diversity in terms of other backgrounds, right? And, and I would just encourage people to go to www.wedrawthelines.com. That's the official commission website, so wedrawthelines.com. And you can see the biographies of them. Um, how they were selected, so we struggled with this, and I will acknowledge that it was a little bit Byzantine. Um, the first issue was you couldn't have anybody just handpicked 
because we couldn't think of an entity or a grouping of people that anybody would trust to do the picking, right? If you let the legislature choose, well, oh my God, you know, if it was the Supreme Court, they lean this way. If it was, you know, the UC, you know, regents, they lean that way. You know, how could you, we, at one point we were thinking about, you know, a group of librarians because who could be mad at librarians? Um, so we, what we did was we said, let's have as open of a process as possible for people to apply. So that's a 30,000. Um, we're going to put the Bureau of State Audits in charge first to screen through the applicants to narrow the pool down. And the idea was that the Bureau of State Audits, much like librarians, are um, hopefully politically not um, as, um, as much of a partisan football as, as other entities might be. Um, and so they did all that screening. They were winnowing, they did the interviews, they got the... 6,000 down to 300, the 300 down to 120, and then eventually down to 60. Um, they take that list of 60 and they're looking for the people who were, uh, had relevant skills, um, who met all of our conflicts of interest requirements, um, who uh, would understand and respect diversity issues, and who would themselves be representative diverse sample. In the, in the, um, and in, in part, that was a response to the idea that your applicants might not be as diverse as the state's population, but you could try to winnow the pool down to a place where it would be fairly diverse. And they, they, I think they did a pretty good job of that. And then they take that 60, they hand it to the legislature. And what we decided was the legislature may not be good at handpicking who the people are, but they are really good at opposition research. And so... <laughs> A lot like a jury voir dire, right? The Democrats and the Republicans each got the same number of strikes and they did their homework and they removed people from the pool that they felt might be ringers for the other side or I just don't like them or you know whatever it was. Um, and they removed a certain number of people from the pool. And then the, the Bureau of State Audits came back. They drew the first eight people and then those eight people then looked at who was remaining in the pool. And so by now you've got Skilled people, no conflicts, um, fairly diverse, removed for uh, political uh, relations, right? And um, they looked at the remaining people in the pool and picked the last six just in case we had a situation where everybody was from Northern California, which we did, and you needed more representation, say, from L.A., or there are too many attorneys, and so you needed to have you know, more people who were from this background, or San Diego didn't have a person, so let's look for somebody from San Diego. We need more, you know, we need an African-American or more Latinos, so let's do that. So they looked at who was remaining in the pool, and they picked the last six to balance out the diversity of the first eight who were randomly drawn. And um, we kept the, the moving parts, you know, um, as complex as possible so nobody could criticize it. Um, but <laughs> what ended up happening was that uh, the 14 people are um, four Latinos, three. three Latinos, wait, 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 wait. It's three Latinos and one person who's of African-American and Latina background. So she, she so, okay, whatever you want to, she's of mixed background. 3.6. Okay. Depends on who wants to claim her. Um, uh, Again, one African-American and one woman who is of mixed background, African-American and Latino. So you could say two or one. Um, four Asian-Americans, one Pacific Islander, one Native American, um, and uh, three whites? Three, three whites. 
Um, so not exactly the state's, rep, you know, diversity, but, but you know, at the same time, I mean, you know, it's, you're going to have a hard time having perfection, but at the same time, fairly diverse. Um, and you had people from, you know, Stockton and Yolo County and Los Angeles and San Diego and Orange County and San Bernardino. So again, an attempt to try to have some geographic representation. Um, so I would say that, you know, that process, though Byzantine, was an attempt to try to pick a group of people who would be fairly representative of Californians and who, if you went to go talk to them, you would say, you know what, I can really relate to you because you're a lot like me. You come from, you know, you're, you're somebody who's who isn't thinking about redistricting 24-7, although now they are, um, <laughs> but, but somebody who came from a, a fairly recognizable background and is now involved in this very huge civic experiment. Well, um, I, I'm going to close it out with two comments. Uh, one, how can people get involved? Um, and Kathy, I think this question was to you, but I'll, I'll give it quickly, which is um, the Redistricting Commission uh, came out with its proposed maps on Friday. Those are merely uh, proposed maps. They're drafts. They are now going on another uh, whistle-stop listening tour around the state. And if you want to go, um, go testify uh, the first meeting is tomorrow night in Culver City. If you go to wedrawthelines.org, you can see uh, where the rest of the meetings are. They are all over the state. But, um, Dan, I know a couple of questions were also for you, and it looked like you had uh, another gonna, thought you wanted I, to share. As the last person standing between you guys and the bar, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up quickly. But I just want to follow up on Kathy's last point, because I think the gentleman asked a great question about the process. Now, I've been an advocate of redistricting reform for 20 years. And I will tell you, I thought that the process that ultimately was developed for Proposition, 1, uh, uh, Proposition 11 was ridiculous. Yes. It was hopelessly overcomplicated. It was obscenely convoluted. And it was mind-bogglingly Byzantine. That said, it was an overwhelming improvement <laughs> from what we had 10 years earlier. And what I will tell you, and this goes back to the points that Steve made, intentionally or not the points that Joe made, and certainly the points that, that Kathy made, what we have, as peculiar a process as these people were picked, what we are left with is 14 people who are trying to do the right thing, as opposed to 120 people who are deliberately trying to do the wrong thing. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that those 14 people will necessarily always do the right thing, but the effort, like Winston Churchill didn't say, <laughs> is the first mile outside of hell heading in the right direction. <laughs> Thank you.